Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Megan. And this is Cinema Super Collider. Where we're smashing up cinema one movie at a time. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here, my friend. Can your heart stand the shocking fact about cinema? episode of Cinema Super Collider, we're going to be talking about the 1988 disaster film Ishtar. And when we say disaster film, we don't mean that it's a movie about a disaster. It's a movie that is a disaster. Like airport or earthquake or... Those are disaster airport films. Airport 2 or... No, no, this is a Earthquake mo- 2. Or- this is a movie that's like so bad, both on screen and off screen, it has become movie legend about its floppedness. Yeah, this is one of the legendary flops of Hollywood lore. Yes. Uh, Everything involved in it is bad. Yeah. When uh, Kevin Costner's Waterworld failed years later, they called it Fishtar because no one could think of a worse movie to compare it to in terms of being a huge financial disaster and artistic flop. I remember when this movie came out and people were kind of excited about it because so many things about this film should have been good. It's directed by Elaine May of the famous comedy duo Nichols and May, which should be a good sign because she has been involved in a number of movies as a writer that were very good, or at least were very good, you know, at the time people thought they were very funny. Um, You know, she was involved with the rewrite of Tootsie, which it stars Dustin Hoffman, who also stars in this movie. Uh, She was involved in the rewrite of Reds, which stars Warren Beatty, who is also in this movie. Mm -hmm. She also did a rewrite on Heaven Can Wait, starring Warren Beatty. Which itself was a remake of a 1950s film, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, yeah. And, And she was, you know, she was considered to be a very funny, very talented director and and writer. Yeah, and it sounds like she had a great uh, career as a script doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, one of these people that comes in and rewrites a script at the last minute to save it if it's like floundering. Well, and she was half of a very popular funny comedy duo. And this goes back to like the early 60s, right? Or the late 50s, the, the Nichols, 50s. Nichols and May. Yeah, Nichols and May, I believe the Compass Players got their start in the 50s. If you're unfamiliar with what the Compass Players were, they're actually very important in the Chicago comedy scene and therefore in the national comedy scene. The Compass Players were a group of improvisational comedian slash theater people that got together on the University of Chicago campus here in obviously Chicago. They included a number of very influential writers, directors, comedians, including Mike Nichols and Elaine May. They would then go forward into the future and become a influential part of the comedy scene for a number of reasons. One of which is they are the reason that the second city here in Chicago exists. 
The Second City is a sketch comedy uh, mecca, basically. And a lot of the people that you might see on Saturday Night Live came from Second City. Right. Also, you know, basically the movers and shakers in comedy, including people like Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, um, the and upright going si- all the way back to, to to the early days of Saturday Night Live. Oh yeah, the John Belushi and mm-hmm. Gilda Radner. Gilda Radner was from uh, Canada. She but, was from uh, uh, yeah. She came through the the, the Canadian Toronto branch of S- of Second City. Right. But, yeah. A lot of the originals. Well, the, SCTV is Second City, City TV. TV. Right. Right. Well, which is one of my passions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so it was a very very important group of people uh, for comedy and Nichols and May sort of like. Nichols and May were very important uh, from this group. They got their start doing improv comedy, and they were then taking what they would sort of workshop improvisationally as a duo. They would take those things, those characters that they would come up with improvisationally, and then they would take them and make them into sketch comedy. Mm -hmm. So the improv to sketch was a... A technique that a lot of a lot of improvisers uh, will use that then therefore go on into sketch comedy. It's it's a technique that uh, Second City folks use when they create their um, their sketch reviews. Uh, I know that um, people that go on to do things like Saturday Night Live will use those to develop characters. So it was it was a technique that that Nichols and May used when they went on to do their comedy albums and their sketch comedy and things like that later on. Yeah, I remember reading about uh, Nichols and May being very sort of necessary, very uh, uh, instrumental in creating this idea of character-driven comedy and in like this this type of application where instead of coming up with a script or an idea or some jokes to begin with, they decided to come up with characters and and playing characters comedy stuff would kind of fall out. And you see that around that time. Uh, I think um, Bob Newhart did something very similar to mm-hmm. that, where it was like character things. And surprisingly, there was a time when nobody did that, you know, and and going back to like the 40s and the 30s and stuff, it was all jokes based or it was all like really wacky. I guess the Marx Brothers played characters. Right. Well, it was their shtick. And you see some of it in old school vaudeville and music hall comedy. But this was not shticky. This was more like it was more grounded it was it was a grounded thing right and and you see that come and go in cycles in comedy a lot of the time so when improv comedy first kind of came out and was being played with in the way that the compass players were playing with improvisation you see some of that coming up because they were not really tied down to rules yet they were making up the rules and that's why it was kind of an exciting period in comedy so you see that come and then the cycle will go to something very different and then you saw stand-up comedy becoming a big thing Mm -hmm. you know and then there's different rules for stand-up comedy (laughs) brick wall was the number one rule i think well but stand-up comedy in the 60s was very different than stand-up comedy in the 80s right and stand-up comedy now 
you know, the stand-up comedy in the 80s was very much the brick wall, yeah. you know, like... Observational humor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yes and no. Stand-up comedy in the 80s, I feel like it was a persona-driven comedy, yeah. if you think about it. It was the Sam Kinison, or uh, it was the Jerry Seinfeld, or, yeah. you know, the it was observational, but it was observational through a persona. Okay. Okay? Sure. Nowadays, it's more of an observational monologuing kind of thing. Yeah. Right? You're telling stories but you're telling stories as yourself. Yeah, there's more story to it and less of just like individual jokes. Like, yeah. do you ever wonder why right. uh, when people go to Burger King, they always order a Big Mac? You yeah, know, it's, it's, it's Patton Oswalt telling a 20-minute a story about him listening to Robert Evans' bumpers on ESPN and, mm-hmm. and finding the, you know, the, the humor in that. Right, yeah. It's not little- just like... A tight five about, you know, air, airline food or whatever. <laughs> oh, that airline food. Where would comedians be without airline food? And in another few years, it's the comedy wheel. Because the comedy wheel always changes. The comedy wheel is constantly yeah, it moving. It would be about living in a fascist society, the, com- the, the comedy in the few years. Well, it's going to ch- it'll It'll shift back to another form. It'll go into sketch comedy again, or it'll go into improv comedy again, or, or there'll be some other thing that gets invented that it'll become. Because... Mm-hmm stand-up will become stale and people won't want to listen to it anymore and Mm. it'll shift into a different form. It's just the same way in the 80s, stand-up got tired and we wanted to see sketch comedy, which is why the heyday of sketch comedy happened after the the wave of stand-up comedy in the 80s was done. You it's see like it. New kids in the, uh, but not new kids on the block. <laughs> no. New the kids ki- on the block would that would have. I honestly, no. I would have paid to the, see the that. The new kids sketch. in the hall. The new kids in the hall. That's uh, what kids in the hall yeah. and uh, Saturday Night Live. Right. And later on, you saw well, the Groundlings was doing not on TV but out in LA. They had a stage stuff. They they the Groundlings are the second city of LA. So they have a very different aesthetic, but they're sketch comedy out in L.A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Groundlings are responsible for people like Will Ferrell mm-hmm. and some of the other... They're the other training sort of node for people that end up in shows like Mad TV and Saturday yeah. Night Live. So and- this is like the comedy behind the comedy. This is like the, the the foundation. Nichols and May is part of the foundation of modern comedy in a large way. Right. A very important sort of brick, foundational brick in all these things. And, and film. And film. And Mike Nichols to this day is a high profile director. He's still directing stuff today. And yes. He has has two hits for every flop, but he directs a lot of stuff. And he had a very influential like mark on film from a very early, you know, point in You have something to do with the graduate? Yeah, he's the director of the graduate. Right. Yeah. I mean he directed a lot of very you know, very groundbreaking a black comedy, if there ever was. One. Yes, yeah. uh, and a lot of his films are are dark or black comedies. Um, so you know, he's he's doing the same things that Elaine May is doing. He's except instead of being the writer, you know, the the screen writer, the punch up writer, he's the one who's actually behind the camera doing the directing of the film. And one of the reasons that Elaine May got this gig directing and writing Ishtar is that Warren Beatty felt. Like, she never really got the chance to do her own movie and her own screenplay with the protection of someone from the studio system. Warren Beatty has a lot of feelings and thoughts about things, and he had a lot of 
clout in Hollywood at one point that he liked to he, he liked to spend that capital and throw his weight around a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, for reasons, some reasons better than others. And in this case, he felt like, hey, this Elaine Mays really helped me out and given me a career and she deserves a shake, you know, being a director. She's got kind of a bad name around Hollywood for being kind of a, you know, a little bit of a perfectionist or, yeah. you know, some anytime white... someone says that, that, oh, you're a bit of a perfectionist in the arts, it means you're a fucking diva that no one wants to work with right right and so he said well look let's give her a chance yeah i want to make this movie with her and this is going to happen and i'm going to rope in uh dustin hoffman also because he owes her also and so we're going to make this movie as a gift to elaine may because she's so awesome and because no one's ever really given her a shake and i'm warren Beatty, and i can do it yeah warren Beatty is one of these guys and and you know i i think i've mentioned it on the cast before that like like there are people in Hollywood or there's people in the arts where it's like they pointed at what came before and are like, I can do better than that. And God damn it. I, you know, I, I, I'm gonna. And like, I feel like Warren Beatty's one of those guys who's just like, you know what? I'm fucking amazing. I'm, I'm awesome. I'm so fucking awesome. And you know what? I, I I'm going to live up to my fucking Eco. Well, he was the he's the Errol Flynn of the seventies, really. I mean, he was associated with so many uh, stars, so many female stars, uh, being the love interest of a lot of them, and being a noted ladies' man. Yeah, and but he also like produced a bunch of actual decent work. Well, he was also a very left liberal, and oh, yes. was not at all shy about being uh, very vocally liberal and making movies with his political ideas. Well, I mean, he made baked in. He made Reds, right? Right, and I mean, and he was also involved with the. Uh, the the, the, the what is it the film workers union or the the sag he was involved yeah, with sag Rangers i Guild. think for a, a long time being like a a muckety muck in there and fighting for the rights of uh, people who are making films and him and boris karloff boris karloff and uh, ed asner i think was also involved in that too i think ed a lot a of big... people have been involved with the screen anyway Guild. so warren Beatty was kind of a powerful man in hollywood and well respected and looked up to and also was like devastatingly handsome you know, uh, and he worked that to his advantage. And it, it, all of these people got together and said, this would be a great movie to make. And then they made it. <laughs> and then it was a disaster. Now, the setup for this, honestly, there's a lot of good ideas in this film, sort of. I mean, it just the basic pitch, the elevator pitch is not a bad pitch. What Elaine May wanted to do is she wanted to do her take on a Road 2 movie, but obviously it was going to be in the 80s instead of back in the day. If you're unfamiliar with what the Road 2 movies were, these are a series of movies that were made back in the 1940s and I think maybe 50s by uh, the duo of Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. Yeah, Road to Morocco is probably the most famous of all of those. I think it was the most popular. Yeah, there was, I think, Road to Bali. There were a number. I think there were like eight or nine of these Road 2 movies. Wow, there were that many of them. I remember watching them as a kid. I loved them as a kid. Everyone loved them. They were great because they were like jokes a kid could understand. Yeah. It was silly. It It was basically a way to put two of the most bankable stars at the time, together to do shtick together in a comedy that was fun and 
<laughs> and you know, like the, the, these are all the things that are different from this picture. There's, it, it, yes, I know. There's, there's nothing. There was no chemistry, right, between uh, Warren Beatty and uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman, and they were not likable. They were both obnoxious characters who you didn't like, and they didn't seem to like improv between the two of them in any way that was like like we saw with uh, Hope and Crosby. I now mean, they, it's just completely different. The interesting thing about Hope and Crosby in real life is that the two of them were kind of each other's biggest rival for a number of reasons. Mm. They were both entertainers. They both had radio shows. You know, they were both basically angling for the same audience at the same time. And so, because they were competitors with one another, there was kind of a frenemies situation going on. Right, right. But people liked seeing them in the films together. And so, they sort of had to work with one another in order to keep this audience base that they would then take money from and popularity from when they were not on screen with one another yeah, from film to film they didn't play the same characters they, they in all of these road to movies they were different guys I, I'm, but the formula was the, the same The formula was the same the two were trying to get the same girl who was always played by dorothy lamour maybe not always usually played by dorothy lamour a pretty actress at the time and Bob Hope was the sort of slick talking. No, 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 no. Well, well, Bing Crosby was kind of like the smooth ladies man, but right. Bob Hope was the guy who had like all the ideas and like was. But the, he was still he was he the was bum- the talky one. He was the talky one, but he was a bum. He was the bumbler. If you're familiar with the work of Woody Allen, Woody Allen ripped off like ninety percent of the Woody Allen character. You know what I'm talking about, the Woody Allen character, from copying Bob Hope. That's what Bob Hope was in those movies. Right. He was always like talking and nervous and uh, making fun of himself and being uh, sort of like negging himself to sort of build himself up. Whereas Bing Crosby was like, he was like the smooth crooner and the ladies man. Yeah. He had a soft voice and he had good looks and it was all kind of effortless for him. Right. He talked like Elmer the penis worm. He did, actually, yeah. quite a bit. Hey, ladies, come on over to my place. I'll mm-hmm. suck out your brain. Right. And Bob Hope was the opposite of that. Very right. Talky. And, but Bob Hope was the funny one. He was the funny He's one. He's the one that's the thing. He got all the laughs. Right. And, and the thing to also know about the Road 2 movies is that both Bing Crosby and Bob Hope had been working in similar radio and on vaudeville stages and stuff for the majority of their career. So they were very used to improvising with other performers. Yes. And a lot of the Road to movies were the two of them just doing shtick. It, in, and to the point where writers of those scripts would show up on set to see them you know, film their movie and 90% of their script would just not be there because the two of them would just get on set and cut up. Yeah. And they're just trying to crack up the crew then at that point. Right. And And the shit that they would come up with would be way more fun and funny than the shit that was on the page, but they could get away with it because they were used to working with one another and they were kind of used to knowing what people wanted to hear and knowing the sort of rhythm and timing of what it was to be funny. Now, Beatty and Hoffman 
Not so much. Abadie and Hoffman were both very good actors. Yes. Uh, but I don't think that they had any kind of improv skill. Probably more than like an average person off of the street who's never acted in front of a camera before would have. But well, I get the feeling like Elaine May set them up with the script and said, okay, you guys, let's do some stuff about when you're writing songs. Here's some lyrics, and you're going to sit at the piano and pretend like you're writing songs. Go. And they were like, uh... Yeah, well, here's the thing. I, I do know about Hoffman. Uh, Hoffman is a method actor. Okay. So, for him to be told to just, like, go with it is probably not in his wheelhouse. But Hoffman's the kind of actor, like, when he did Marathon Man, he didn't sleep for, like, a week. Like, literally. Uh, so okay. that he could get into character. Sure, sure. That's the kind of actor that he is. He's not the kind of actor that you're like, oh, hey, guys, you're on set today. So we're going to just like pretend like you're writing some songs. So yeah. like, just go with it. Yeah. Like, he's not that guy, at least if, from what I've read. He's just not that guy. So anyway, we should probably just find out what happens. <laughs> well, half half of our show's over. We haven't talked about the movie at all. So, the movie's terrible. So, oh Eric, God, this is bad. so what happens in Ishtar? Okay, I think this is a pretty easy one to sort of uh, summarize, right? It is. It's their two down-on-their-luck songwriters get a gig in, not in Ishtar, but in Marrakesh. Yes. Right. And to get, and so they're, they're down on their luck and they spend an inordinate amount of time going over how and why they're down there. But you don't need to know. They're just two songwriters who are down in their luck who get a gig doing as lounge singers in Marrakesh. And when they go over there, they get caught up in a complex web of spy stuff with a secret map that's hidden and an evil, like uh, uh, an evil prince who is not good to his people. And the CIA is involved and maybe some like communist organization involved. And these two are like kind of unwitting dupes in this thing. And the good guys win and uh, the one or both of them get the girl in the end. I don't know. It's yeah, it's hard to tell. Basically, the story it doesn't really need much more no. than that. No, the story in and of itself, like, just plot-wise, is very simple. Yeah, it, it's kind of, there's a little bit of, like, boy meets boy, boy loses boy, boy gets boy back, in the in the sense that it's uh, 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 Hoffman and, uh, and Beatty. Yes. Because they start out as being, like, really, really close friends, because they went through a lot of bad stuff together. They lost their girlfriends and had some really, really tough moments, and they're really, they're, they support one another, even though they both suck. But they're there for one another, and they're very good friends. And then this kind, this girl kind of comes between them. She talks to one of them, and the other one thinks that the other one's not talking to them because he's talking to the CIA guy, and the CIA guy thinks that the other guy is talking to the girl, which makes the other guy like against the, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's a, Shakespeare would have written a story like this with a lot of like yes. misunderstandings and a lot of like you didn't talk to so and so about such and such, but we saw you from a distance coming out of somebody's and the, room and. and the the girls dressed like a boy, so it's total Shakespeare. Yeah, the girls dressed. That was another odd thing. They kept making a big deal out of Isabella Johnny, the actress playing the actress who, in real life, was Beatty's girlfriend, being a boy. And there is absolutely nothing boyish about her, except maybe her clothes. But because they are, it's Eastern Middle Eastern garb. To my Western eye, I didn't see that necessarily as a as someone in boys' clothes, and from her face is not at all boyish. Her face is, yeah. is, is like very, very feminine and womanly. Uh, I know sometimes like a, a young lady's face can resemble a young boy's face, 
but not this actress and no. not the way they filmed it. And so it was almost confusing to me because they kept on like doing this, this shtick about how, you know, like a young boy like you shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, what? And it's, and there's a lot of like tit grabbing and like boob showing and weird stuff like that, which just kind of made me feel uncomfortable. And just, uh, I don't know. It was so long and it was so it, yeah. boring and the comedy bits, man, fell flat. It was nothing funny about it. So much of the comedy of this movie, I'm absolutely convinced, and I think you'll back me up, was based on the fact that you were supposed to find it funny to see sexy Hollywood star Warren Beatty dressed up in a silly costume acting flustered around ladies. You're supposed to see that, you know, in 1988, you're supposed to go to the movie theater and see that and just fall out of your seats laughing because everybody knows what a ladies man Warren Beatty is. And to see him dressed in a funny costume and be uncomfortable around the ladies was supposed to just be knocked down funny. And it never works. No. Never works. No. And Dustin Hoffman's supposed to be some kind of a ladies man, but- but not. It's not. I mean, he's like, he's supposed to be slick and he's a fancy dresser and stuff, but the clothes he wears are not like really that attractive. And they're also kind of old to be playing like- the, well, they, they even sort of say that they, though they at say the beginning. It, yeah, they say it like, well, you're never going to make it in the songwriting business because you're too old. And sure, but to be like romantic uh, rivals for this young lady- uh, it's just kind of weird. And the idea that Dustin Hoffman, I don't know how old he was, like 40, 44 year old Dustin Hoffman was some sort of a smooth ladies man with his black shirt with the little silver tips on the collar and his like headbands and stuff. That's, it's a, that's a stretch. Well, it, I, I think that part of what we were supposed to take from it is that like they were both kind of, they're both kind of just lame. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think that I think part of what this movie is lacking. Uh, so, so we do get to see them as their lounge act. Uh, well, it it we do get to see them as their singer songwriter act, uh, sure. which is dreadful. It's just awful. And we should mention that the the person that wrote the original quote unquote songs for this film was Paul Williams. Hey, connection all the way back to Phantom of the Paradise yeah. episode, whatever. Look, he gets around. Paul Williams writes a lot of shit. Uh, but he was tasked with writing songs for them because they're not supposed to be good singer-songwriters. They're supposed to be kind of lame singer-songwriters. So Elaine May had him write songs that were that were intentionally bad songs. Which he had a great time writing. He was like, this is the best. He's like, I've never had so much fun working on a, a movie before because it's actually kind of hard to write intentionally bad songs. But this is fun. And the songs are not good. Like, mm. and, and Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Nothing at all. Don't let them something. You play the accordion. You won't get work in a rock and roll band. Yeah. In fact, the movie starts with like a songwriting session between the two of them, and it's painful. Yeah. It's supposed to be painful, but it it's is. Supposed, you're supposed to be laughing at them, but it's not. You're just you're just in pain. Right. It, it doesn't cross from pain. You know, it's like like enough pain makes it funny, but this does not. It does no. It just no. It's not. And so I think one of the things that the movie is lacking is that we see them be shitty songwriters and a, a shitty originals act. A number of times, and mm -hmm. 
I I believe that the movie wants us to like laugh at them. Right. Like aren't they aren't, aren't they pathetic? Aren't they pathetic and ridiculous. But I don't well, why do you want to see why do you want well, them to be pathetic? Right. Though? That's the thing is like I don't actually I they're they're my protagonists. I'd like to see them be successful. It's like I I need to care about them. And there's not really a point in the movie that you really care about them. There's there's one small bit in the film because they do get they get booked to play at this hotel in Marrakesh as a lounge act. So being lounge singers. Right. So they're not doing original material. They're doing things like That's Amore and, you know, songs that people. I thought it was funny that Warren Beatty wanted to do Simon and Garfunkel songs because of like the whole New York thing and because of like the singer songwriter thing. And everybody else wanted to hear like the these like Italian restaurant standards. I thought that was kind of humorous. Yeah, it was funny. And so I thought one of the most successful parts in this film is when they do their lounge act because- the two actors are kind of cutting up mm-hmm. in this lounge act, and everybody in the lounge in Marrakesh is having a really good time. Yeah, and that's a funny scene, not necessarily because of their performance, but because of the circumstances, the situation. Right, and and like some of the things that they do on stage are funny, like... Dustin Hoffman's character is clearly the one that's like the show off. Like he wants to be the front man of a band. You can tell because, like, you know, he's like he's like playing. He's been working for years as like a piano man. He was, yeah, he was like a like a a, a Greek restaurant. Yeah, like a lounge, like piano lounge guy. So he had that that, the flair part of his talent. what am I trying to find? What's the word I'm trying to find? Like his patter. Yeah, it was part of his thing. It's part of what he his did. Yeah. yeah. So like, like you could see his character in that moment. And like, you know, the Warren Beatty character, you can tell that he wants to be part of a lounge act, but he just doesn't quite have the confidence to pull it off by himself. Mm. He's more of the like accompanist. Sure. Yeah. And the two of them together on stage in that moment, while everybody's having a great time and they're singing, you know, uh, you know, they're singing songs that like everyone can sing along when the with. Moon hits your eye, right? Like a big a pizza pie. That's amore. It's yeah. it, in that moment, like I genuinely liked both of the characters. Yeah, I'm on their side now. Like when before, yeah. they were like kind of like whiny old like losers. There, you're supposed to feel sorry for them when their girlfriends leave them, but I didn't feel sorry I didn't for feel them sorry because it was like, them. what girlfriend would sit? stick around for this kind of awful behavior yeah no it's, I mean, it's like they're it's just, just crap yeah i it's mean uh, carol kane is a uh, uh, dustin hoffman's beautiful girlfriend who says can i move in with you and dustin hoffman's like no you can't move in with me not until i know it's for real we gotta know to be sure i gotta go talk to warren Beatty at this other table like being mean to carol kane so he can do his awful singing yeah come on man not good. no 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 that was terrible and you didn't like them so yeah so like if the movie had helped me be on their side, then the the funny parts and the endearing parts that I think the script was trying to show me, I would have been more willing to go with. But they didn't do that. And so I think that's one of the biggest failings of this film is I don't give a shit about either one of the main characters in this movie. And so when bad things happen to them, I'm kind of glad. Yeah, I had the same feeling. Through the whole thing, I kept trying to sort of recast it or rewrite it or <laughs> it's recut true. it in my mind. It's like, how could I make this funny? How could I make this part good? And I think the best idea would be to scrap all of like the first 15 minutes, the whole first act of this thing when they're in New York with the girlfriends and supporting one another as defunct, lousy songwriters. You didn't need to see that. It didn't really mean anything that much later in the film. 
out of that 20 minutes for the first act, a full 10 or 15 minutes of that is done in flashback. It's true. It's the so longest it's like, flashback. It's like a long, it, it's like long before the movie gets started. You see these two and then there's a long, long flashback. And then we come back to these two and the movie should have started with them on the flight to Marrakesh. And then landing there and then doing their silly lounge act because you'd go like, ha, 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 look at these American tourists who go all the way to Marrakesh and are applauding this lousy act just because it's something they're familiar with. You know, Americans are are like Philistines in a foreign land. And then these guys have like the meeting out of the palm of their hand, even though they're kind of a cornball act. But everybody's having fun and it's kind of neat and you're on their side. And then you could have had like some business with the two of them being friends together and then talking, you know, just a little bit of talk. You know, I remember that time I was so sad, my girlfriend, and I was almost about to jump out the window and you came and saved me. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember that time. Yeah. Oh, that's why I'll always stick together with you, buddy. And well, don't you know it? You could have done that instead of showing all that. Yeah. And really, if you if, if in showing all that you had some great comedy, then good. But they didn't. And so not good. Yeah. And then the fact that they're immediately going behind each other's backs to get the attention of Isabella Gianni uh, and like telling lies and being sneaky and, and stabbing one another in the back, so to speak, doesn't make them more likable. It just makes them less likable. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's like, you know, you guys, you were talking about how you had to stick together through thick and thin and you guys were all these great friends. And as soon as you see a pretty face show up, it's like all bets are off. You didn't, these guys weren't set up as being like ladies, men or crazy to find a woman or, you know, nothing like that. It's just, it's just poorly executed, just dumb. And like the, the long sections of when they're doing their act, uh, that they show like like they're supposed it's supposed to be bad and it just goes on and on and on it's so boring yeah oh my god yeah I there were points in this film there are other people in this movie uh, obviously Carol Kane is in this film briefly, uh, briefly. Um, Charles Grodin is in this film yeah. uh, and like every time Charles Grodin would show up I'd be like oh thank god thank god Charles Grodin is here he's gonna do something yeah he's at least kind of funny as a sleazy CIA dude yeah I mean Charles Grodin plays Charles Grodin in every film that Charles Grodin is in like mm-hmm. he doesn't have any characters he's yeah. just Charles Grodin it's kind of who he is in real life remember him from his like cable talk show mm-hmm. yeah he's yeah. just that guy he's just yeah. Charles Grodin and so when when he, sho- when he shows up it's just like oh thank god good it's the palate cleanser someone showed up with the Charles Grodin sorbet mm-hmm. tastes like smarm uh, I was really <laughs> I was really delighted that Matt uh, Frewers in this film, yeah, fresh uh, off his, uh, his his run as uh, Max Headroom. Max Headroom, yeah, he's and he's very briefly in this film, and honestly, he's the funniest thing in this movie. Yeah, like that his shtick in. So there's there's a chase scene. <laughs> yeah, you explain this. <laughs> there's a chase scene in a marketplace. Oh boy, in Marrakesh, and like it looks great. It looks great. Yeah. I mean, if you're gonna fly all the way to fucking North Africa, you may as well f- like film on location, which is what they did. They the studio wanted them to film all of the Northern African shit in the southwest of the U.S. Because yeah, because it's about a 20 minute drive outside of L.A. Yeah, it would have been <laughs> way cheaper to do, but maybe an hour. <laughs> but like depending on traffic, you there know? were reasons that they needed to go to North Africa, and so they did. Elaine <laughs> May, Elaine <laughs> May, and the studio, and so it was like well i guess we're here um they spent a lot of money on this movie they didn't need to spend i think uh we read through some of the 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 stories about things i think my favorite was that one of the cameras broke and they need to replace a part but instead of shipping the part via like fedex or something Mm -hmm. they sent it 
with a studio like production assistant. So they had to fly the PA over to North Africa and then pay for the PA to stay at a hotel. So instead of spending, you know, like, I don't know, like 50 bucks to ship something over to North Africa, they spent a few thousand bucks, a few thousand bucks on a plane ticket there and back. And then like a week's worth of hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I derailed you because you, you in all of your bravery, you were going to give us the story of the chase scene in the market in Marrakesh. Yeah. Ready? Go. Okay. So, so they have to, sh- they don't have to, no one has to do anything in this movie. Sure. Like literally, there's, Go ahead. no one has to do shit in this movie, but people do. <laughs> so our, our duo uh Beatty and Hoffman show up at this marketplace because Warren Beatty is told that he's supposed to go there to buy a blind camel by the love interest for reasons. Yeah, do tell. Go ahead. For reasons. So they show up there and they are wandering around in the marketplace and they are being followed by a number of people, some of whom are CIA like operatives some of whom are kgb operatives some of whom are working for this emir who wants them dead some of whom are working for isabella johnny's group right freedom fighters the freedom fighters so there's like i think they were shiites at one point who knows they're guerrillas they're they're leftist guerrillas sure commies who knows so there's sorry you go ahead do it so there's like at least four different groups of people that are following them around and so the camera cuts over to matt frewer who is Stacking bracelets on a thing because why not? You know who knows. And he's he's standing next to another like white guy agent wearing sunglasses, and they're wearing fezes because this is their disguise. And he's explaining to his buddy like who the different people are that are following our duo of protagonists. And the guy's like, "Well, so who are the guys dressed as like beggars?" And he's like, "Oh, those are the CIA agents." He's like, oh, well, then who are the guys that are dressed in the Hawaiian shirts? And he's like, oh, those are the KGB agents. Well, who are the guys dressed as cowboys? Oh, those are the, you know, those are the, the you know, the Amir's guys. And he's like, well, who are the guys in the shorts, the Bermuda shorts? Oh, those are just tourists. So, like, it's the shtick. It's, it would be funnier if it was, like, delivered in a... It would be funnier if the movie around it was already funny. If you were in a mood to laugh, you might right. have been laughing. But you were sitting there with their jaws on the floor and our eyes tearing up in boredom and, and, and hatred that falls flat. The only reason that I liked it and, and I liked that Matt Frewer was delivering it was that his delivery was so disinterested in, in what was going on. It was just like, oh, yeah, those are the KGB agents, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, whatever. I don't fucking care. I got these bracelets. I'm stacking bracelets bitches mm-hmm. like this this business that i'm doing in this scene right here on camera this is where it's at bracelets on poles stacking these bracelets that's what i got going on and i was like you made a choice sir your choice was being bored and disinterested just like we are in this film mm-hmm. thank you sir thank you for reflecting my feeling i feel like i'm being validated right now yeah the MacGuffin in this movie is a, a map it shows something. It's it's a MacGuffin map. It doesn't even, like, nobody even fucking... Nobody even takes two minutes to explain what it is. They exactly. keep referring to the fact that there's these two messengers of God that are going to show up and, like, do something in Ishtar. Who the fuck cares? Why didn't they work that angle, though, in the, in the, in the picture? I mean, just, like, like, have those two guys be mistaken for, like, some sort of, like, 
prophecy foretold. That would have been funny. Yeah. Oh, wait, excuse me. It would have been funny if Hope and Crosby were in that role. Look, you know like what? Like they all lift them up and they're like, hey, you're the new leaders of our movement. And then Bob Hope would be going, wait a minute. I didn't sign up to be leader of any kind of movement. Right. You know? And that would have been funny. You know what movie <laughs> I kept thinking about while <laughs> I was watching this movie? I kept <laughs> thinking about the movie Spies Like Us. Did you ever oh, see that yeah, movie? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. With Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. I kept thinking about that movie because like, it's not that that movie was brilliant or like super hilarious funny, but it it was better than this movie and it had basically a similar premise. Wasn't there a Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn movie too that was like a spy I'm sh- I'm flick? Sure. Uh, Something about Beware the Dwarf. Do you remember that? That was no. like a secret line. I remember that there was a movie called Protocol that I believe was a Goldie Hawn movie where she had to like... She had to be like a like a foreign like diplomat or something. No, this was something else. This was like uh, I can't remember what it was called, but there was a there's another. There, there were movies like that. There was a there was a movie with uh, one of the uh, Estevez things. There was like a fake spy movie with the uh, like either an Estevez or a Sheen back in the eighties. Oh, Top Secret. Top Secret. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was um that wasn't an Estevez or a Sheen. That was a uh, Val Kilmer. Oh, okay. Sure, but there was there was a bunch of like these uh, sort of like Fake. secret agent comedy films right, in the like, 80s. Yeah. That, or know, mistaken was... identity movies. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I think there was also, um, wasn't there a- uh, Even these movies we can't remember the names of were better movies Wasn't there a Bill Murray movie called The Man with One Red Shoe where he um, was like- Was that a Bill Murray movie or was that a Steve Martin movie? That, I think that was a Bill Murray movie. Oh, uh, okay. I think- yeah. Doesn't matter. Don't but, remember. But like I kept I was watching Ishtar and I kept thinking about spies like us because it's like two guys getting into trouble. The the Russians think they're spies and you know, and like hilarity ensues. And I just remember it being a better movie than Ishtar. Yeah, the KGB thinks they're CIA. The CIA thinks, thinks they're, they're KGB, KGB. Right. And the uh the freedom fighters or the uh guerrillas think they're some of them think they're this and some of them think they're that. The Emirs people think they're guerrillas fighters and guerrilla fighters think they're Ramirez people and like hilarity ensues but it never ensues no no Mm-mm. and like and sort of like the 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 main plot where they they had to die is like they have to die holy shit that That's, takes up like the last third of this whole goddamn movie they're out like, in the desert oh Okay, so okay, so obviously, Eric, so bad. I really hated this Eric, movie. and I hated this movie. So okay, so there's a few things I feel like we should also mention about this film production wise. Yeah, help me out here because I don't think I can. I don't think I can talk any more about this movie without starting to become angry. So a few things that you should know production wise. So we mentioned that Warren Beatty wanted to basically gift this movie to Elaine May because he felt like she hadn't really had an opportunity to put put a film out where she had been protected from the studio system and, you know, really like have her voice and her direction out there. Well, so he, he vouched for her and he got this film picked up by Columbia Pictures. And so there was a lot of shenanigans involved in getting that to happen. And so it did. And she turned out to be kind of a difficult director to work with on this movie. And not only did she get a final cut, like sometimes when stars or directors or whatever sign on to films they are allowed to have final cut like sort of like last they have to approve it before it goes out right like they get the they are the last one who can say nope i need something changed right so not only did she have a final cut approval on this film but so did Beatty and hoffman so there's three people including this and and the studio that have final cut approval on this film 
That's a lot of people with Final Cut approval on And most everybody hated everybody else by the end. By the end of it, because people were so difficult to work with, namely Elaine, May, and Beatty, everybody was- more like it was Elaine, May, and Beatty was like, Beatty was being annoying just bending over backwards to give Elaine, May- her do yes it sounds like to me we're well, reading, reading the story about it th- i think my favorite bit is that like everybody basically said on any other picture elaine may would have been fired because she was being so difficult and she was being so demanding on set yeah and warren Beatty, even though he hated her at this point and knew she was being obnoxious and unreasonable still stood up for her right he was like She's got to finish this picture because if if she leaves, I'm probably the one who's going to have to finish it. And it'll be very embarrassing for me because I vouched for her. That's true, too. Yeah. I vouched for her. And so if if she if if I fire her or she leaves, then I'm stuck holding the bag and I'm the one who set this whole project in motion. He went out on a limb for her. Right. And she's like gone. Yeah. You know. And so he was like, no, no, she's finishing the picture. But at that point, he was like, well. I don't trust that she's going to finish the picture the way I would finish the picture. So we're going to shoot things once, at least once her way. And then we will also shoot things at least once my way. So every scene is going to be shot twice, at least. So they filmed everything double, which is like the, the, the money starts piling up at this point because every take is taking double. And then once all of the film got finished... There was 108 hours worth of rushes, which is three times the amount of like actual footage that a comedy usually ends up with when a film is done filming. That's a lot. It's a lot of stuff to go through. Then we have four final cuts. We're talking a movie that's under two hours here. Yes. So if that if that works out, it's like usually there's like 30 hours worth of footage for a two-hour comedy. Right. That has to be trimmed down. It sounds like a lot, but I mean, you know, it's it, that's like reasonable amount that what you would expect because you got to have like extra coverage for things and there's you know shot reverse shot things and angles and stuff that they that they have to shoot for coverage. So, but to have a hundred hours, hundred eight, hundred and eight hours. Of, of footage to go through for a less than two hour movie is that ridiculous. Is a fi- that is 54 films, two hour films worth of footage. So what, what we're talking, yes. So what we're talking about is at, at the end of it all, there were three separate groups editing a hundred, each group editing its own 102 hours worth of raw footage into its own movie. So there were three final cuts to this movie. Yes. Each one of them, all the editing time, all the effort, all the groups of people involved, uh, uh, post recordings, uh, looping dialogue and everything, all of that done three times and the studio paid for all three of them yes and there were two groups of editors because the the cinematographer had an like an italian group of workers because he was an italian guy but because of like union things and various you know employment bullshits they couldn't use them for everything so they had to hire an identical group of workers. So there's an Italian group and then a non-Italian group. So they had like two sets of people. It got ridiculous. The film had a budget of like $24 million, $12 million of which were salaries for May, Hoffman, and Beatty. So that, that was what they started with. By the time they finished working on the film, the film's final budget was $50 million. 
And this is 1988 money, so that's like over $100 million today. Plus 20 additional million dollars worth of like publicity stuff. Sure. So $70 so million. the kind dollars. of money that they spend on a, on a Marvel movie. It opened in first place at the box office. It made like $4 million opening weekend. But it only grossed a total of $14 million, thus making it, just from production costs, $40 million in the hole. We're not, cu- we're not counting any of the publicity costs. Right. So, basically, it recouped the money that they spent on the stars. Barely. Barely. Yeah. So, it, it was a big budget flop. Yeah. You want to tell them any more about, like, this desert thing, which <laughs> takes up, like, the last third of the movie? The desert thing? They're lost in the desert. I mean, they're lost in the desert. Yeah, I don't even want to talk about it. I really don't want to talk about it. I hated it. I hated it. I was, <laughs> we, when we first turned it on, I said, Megan, what do you think is going to happen? You're like, I don't know. It's going to be boring. And I said, well, I think it's going to be boring, but I think it's not going to be as bad as they said it was. I think the comedy bits are going to fall flat, and I think there's going to be some boring stuff in it, but overall, it's not going to be all as bad as we're just going to say that it you know, it's kind of a disappointment. I think, and I really, I was surprised I think at how I much said, I hated it. I think I said, it's going to be really boring, and you're going to hate it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I was right. Yeah. Boy, I really hated this. It was really painful. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. Thanks for listening to Cinema Super Collider. Follow us on Twitter at Cinema Supercast, or you can follow Eric at Dr. Algren on Twitter or at Eric Electric on Instagram. Or you can follow Megan at Wheel Tree Megan on Twitter or Instagram. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. See you next time. Let us pray that we all get the job. Crying out loud gets you pointed and laughed at. Be like a baby, only baby should cry. Somebody tell me how that rumor got started. Some things I know that only God knows why.